we're going to wind up with eight quarters in a row of revenue growth. And to show you how important that's been is 90% of our FAs in 2020 were at their career highs. And we're going to have that same number this year. You know, our top 10 programs are all 150% or higher above their goal. A lot of those things can be attributed to the client experience and they're referring to their bank and loan officers opportunities. And when you do those things, you get good things back in return. Our best advisors, it seems too simple, but they literally just meet with their clients on a regular basis and they have a service model and a process. The average penetration rate is 4% of our clients have an investment account. Well, you need a lot more advisors if you want to start increasing that because 4% sucks, right? Wallet share standpoint, the average advisor has 35, 40% wallet share. So not only do penetration rates suck with investment accounts, but even those with investment accounts are not giving us all their investable assets. What do we have to do to not only keep up, but stay relevant if you fast forward five, 10 years from now? As we go forward, it's going to be robo-credit, robo-trust, robo-insurance. Robo is just that next step in automation that we've been on for 45, 50 years. It's giving you more time to interact, interface with clients. The financial advisor is really the only thing that makes our industry relevant. I'm not sure we've done what we need to do to help them be ready for all these things. You can't write an algorithm for trust. I think the crossroads are here, change is here. The future is definitely different, but adapt to it. The opportunities are as big, if not bigger. Hello, and welcome to BISA Industry Trend Watch podcast. Good to have you with us today. Industry Trend Watch is a monthly series with industry leaders discussing trends in the financial institutions channel. Productivity trending is provided by our bankchannelresearch.com portal, an interactive tool that reports on channel performance based on data collected monthly from over 50 financial institutions. In addition to industry trends, you will hear our guests provide their perspectives on the evolving strategic initiatives that are driving success and enabling our channel to better compete in the broader financial services industry. But first, we'd like to thank Ameriprise for making these podcasts possible. And as a show of appreciation, let's please listen to this brief message. We will then turn it over to Jana Capaletti, the creator of bankchannelresearch.com, who will kick us off with a trending overview. This is Chris Melton, National Director of the Ameriprise Financial Institutions Group. Ameriprise Financial Institution Group is a proud sponsor of the BISA Monthly Industry Trending Podcast Series. With more than 25 years of experience and knowledge in serving the investment program needs of local banks and credit unions, Ameriprise Financial Institution Group brings a depth of understanding as well as investment capabilities to help clients and members feel more confident, connected, and in control of their financial life. We look forward to learning more about your financial institution and sharing how a successful investment program can be a competitive advantage. Call us at 800-679-1237 or visit us at ameriprise.com slash AFIG. Securities offered by Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC. Not federally insured, no financial institution guarantee, may lose value. Thank you. 
Hi, this is Janet Capuletti, the Managing Director of Research for Stathis Partners and the creator of BankChannelResearch.com, here with highlights from September 2021. We saw a double-digit drop in trailer revenue last month, causing a slump in productivity compared to August. However, alternative investment product revenue doubled in September and fixed annuities recovered 15%. That offset the dip in recurring revenue. This landed September almost squarely over August in most measures, while FC production gained 10% on a monthly basis and 25% over September 2020. The bigger picture comes in from quarterly and year-to-date growth rates. The third quarter of 2021 represents our fifth consecutive quarter of growth. Revenue penetration was 10% over the third quarter of 2020, and more than 20% higher than the recent low when production hit the skids in the second quarter of 2020. Quarterly fixed annuity production sank 12% from Q2 and was 10% below the third quarter of 2020. However, platform reps generated 30% more fixed annuity revenue compared to Q3 2020. The monthly average FC production in the third quarter sailed over 20% from last year, reaching a record high of over $47,000 per rep. Average FC production year-to-date, cumulative, as of September 30th, totaled $410,000 per rep, a new record head and shoulders above previous years. At this point in 2020, on average, the FCs had produced a total of $336,000 per rep. I would like to thank LPL and Infinex for providing much of the data used in this analysis. And now I want to turn it over to Scott and Bob. Hello and welcome to BISA Industry Trend Watch. I'm Scott Stathis. I will be your host along with Bob Mattel, who will introduce himself in a moment. This month, we are continuing with our focus on top performing programs and what they do that sets them apart. And we are joined by David Zimmerman, who has run several top performing programs, as well as Josh Hinch, who is with Ameriprise and will provide the third party broker dealer perspective. So last month, we interviewed David Billiter. And he runs the program at First Citizens Bank, who is one of the best performers in our bank channel research performance reporting. So during that talk, David was gracious enough to credit his predecessor as the one inherently responsible for the program's success. Well, David Zimmerman is that predecessor. He now runs the program at Atlantic Union Bank, and we're happy to have him with us today. So let me pass it to Bob, who will introduce himself and then he will have our guests introduce themselves. Bob? Thanks a lot, Scott. And again, welcome to this podcast. This is the BISA Industry Trend Watch, October edition, where we will review the third quarter trends in the industry. I am Bob Mattel, and I am the co-host of this podcast. And today, as usual, we have a great panel that we thank and appreciate for joining us today. We'd also like to thank the BISA for their partnership in these podcasts. Don't forget that the BISA is holding a conference this November in Washington, D.C. Check it out on BISANet.org for more information. Now let's meet our panel. Josh. Yes, hello, uh, Josh Hinch. Uh, I'm the regional sales director within our Ameriprise Business Development Group. And uh, I do support and help the institutional advisors at Ameriprise grow the organic side of their business. So I look forward to being here. And as Scott said before, we also are joined by David Zimmerman. David. 
Hey, first, I want to thank you for having me on the podcast and really for doing this podcast. I think for the industry, it's a great tool. I refer to it. I can't make them all. I wish I could say I did, you know, when you guys first put them out, but I do refer to it and it's very valuable and I think it's going to have a long life. So congratulations. How long have you guys been doing this before I introduce myself? We started in June of last year, so I lost track, but you know, you can listen to all of them. They're available wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the 14th or something like that. Um, at least 14th. Yeah, 14th, 15th, yes. In this series. That's great. So, I mean, we expect them to continue. So thanks for doing that. Thanks for having me on. I'm the president at Atlantic Union Bank Wealth Management, which is really, it's a division of Atlantic Union Bank. There's four components to our wealth management group, which looks like most wealth management groups out there. Atlantic Union Financial Consultants is our financial advisor business. We have private banking, we have trust and asset management, and we have three registered investment advisor businesses. Atlantic Union Financial Consultants has 20 financial advisors, a little more than $2 billion in assets, and the revenue is, cross fingers, going to finish the year over $12 million for the year. Excellent. Thank you so much for that introduction. And now let's get into our opening question. I know you've each been equipped with our preliminary third quarter data produced by Bank Channel Research. So we've seen five straight quarters of impressive revenue growth in our channel. We're on quite the trajectory and trend here. Josh, what are you attributed to? Is it market tailwinds? What's behind the curtain? And, you know, this is obviously across the industry. Are you seeing the same in your institutions? Yeah, great question. So I immediately just looked at what we've been doing within our channel. And I'd say market growth is definitely has to be the number one factor and specifically with the managed money. So more and more, the advisors uh, in our institutions, at least are moving money into managed money. And you know, with that, it does take a year, 18 months for you to really see the full growth on that and the revenue that comes from that. And Last year was a really great year in moving money from retirement accounts and moving money from other assets into those managed money. And we're really starting to see the ramp up there. And if you look at our channel specifically, the amount of money that's went from brokerage to managed is huge. So that's really the number one area. The other thing that has made a big difference is the goal-based advice. So just having a more comprehensive conversation, we're really focusing on the advisors in our institutions to look at everything and not just that one product that they might have looked at in past years is we have that maturing CD, we're going to get it into a better rate and we're going to move on. Having a more in-depth conversation, looking at their whole situation has helped identify a lot more opportunities and They've wrote more business because of that. And then lastly, we just do a really good job of communicating with your partners. And I think that's across the whole industry, the development, the recruiting, looking at all the areas of advisors practice. I think you bring all those things together. You look at institutions and having the right number of advisors in those branches, those things all make a big, big difference. So at least for us, that's what's really moved the needle. I think that's, you know, across the board. Oh, that, that's really good insight. And I was wondering, you said goal-based advisors, and you talked about the right number of advisors. What about the right number of clients for an advisor? Has that been changing? Is there a number that you kind of leverage or, or look to? You know, that's been the magic question or the, the answer we've been looking for for years. And I worked a lot of years on the independent side with advisors and 
some advisors swore that it was 100 clients was their magic number. Others said, I can do 400. That was probably a little too much. But uh, I'd say from experience, what I've seen is that 200 plus or minus, depending on if you have staff and you really have a good operating system, a process, that's probably the magic number. But, you know, everybody is a little different. And I, I do throw in the staff or support. If you can get support from your credit union, from your bank, that makes a huge difference. You know, we just came out of a, uh, a roundtable up in Groton, Massachusetts, and I think the magic number there was about 180, if I remember correctly, Scott. You know, I think that is has always been attributed to the success in the industry. And when a, an advisor has, you know, a, a select group of numbers, they're even easier able to penetrate into that and, uh, and generate more results. Yeah, that 180 number was if an advisor is pretty much solo. It's about 250 if the advisor is leveraged with sales assistants or maybe an associate advisor. 250 is about the magic number with about 80% advisory business. And I see David smiling and I'm guessing he's going to kind of reinforce that from his experience. Well, I mean, for me, I think it's as much a mindset, less is more. Don't pick a number, less is more. Because you know they have more than whatever the magic number is. So, you know, just to get that mindset with practice management, continuing to pare your book down so you can focus. I just really, less is more. So I'm not sure what the magic number is. Probably less than what they have. Yeah, no, of course. Right. And less, sure. less hey, branches is more too, right? We've had that discussion before. <laughs> exactly. David, five straight quarters of growth. What's happening? What's happening at Atlantic Union? Well, you know, I'm looking at some numbers here and I'd go back to last year to the beginning of the year. And I think our trends started early in 2020 and quarter over quarter. I mean, if we can get through the end of this year, so cross our fingers for the fourth quarter, We're going to wind up with eight quarters in a row of quarter over quarter increased growth, revenue growth. And I think to kind of back those numbers up to show you how important that's been is 90% of our FAs in 2020 were at their career highs. And we're going to have that same number this year. So we're going to have about 90 FAs again that are going to have career highs. So these last two years have been unbelievable for the industry. You know, what do I attribute that to? I I'd love to say that it's great ideas and programs and product and process, but in my mind, it comes down to two things. First, I think the pandemic, I mean, it set some things in motion, the need to contact our clients at a level that we probably should have always been doing, but we weren't always doing. So in that, I say we contact our clients by a factor of 10x. And I, I you know, I'm not sure that's the right number. That may not be fair. But I know it went up dramatically. And because of that, the financial advisors, you know, were uncovering opportunities. They were connected to their clients in ways they were discovering new assets. So I think that really set some things in motion. And hopefully those are habits that we'll carry forward into our new way of behavior. And then, you know, we talked about it. Look, Mr. Market has been really, really kind to this industry. Prior to 2020, we were on a really good trend. But who, who would have thought that we would be where we are today without any kind of really prolonged career, you know, drawn out reaction to what we've been living through? So I think those to me are really the keys. We didn't introduce any new products. We didn't introduce any new training. We didn't, I mean, you just didn't introduce a lot. We were in reaction mode. Now that said, going into that, you needed to have some things done. The FAs needed to be prepared with whatever your program is, whatever you were supporting, whatever technology you were trying to put into place. So 
I think good programs were prepared going into that. You know, Paul Haynes was running our program recently. You know, I moved over David Heffelfinger and David's run the program. Whoever's running the program gets credit. So thank you with your opening. I'm not taking credit for anything done in the past. Whoever's driving the bus owns the results. And Paul really got the FAs where they needed to be. A lot of practice management, a lot of goal-based planning, a lot of the basics of being prepared for you know, the unknown that could hit us at any time. So I wish there were some rocket science ideas here, but I think it's what we need to do all the time, good or bad climate being the case. And I think what you're saying is really, we've become more productive in the environment and we've definitely accelerated the use of technology. Without the pandemic, it would have taken many more years to get organizations DocuSign savvy. I mean, that happened within five and six weeks in organizations and it would have taken years. So we probably fast forwarded technology by five years. So I think that has really enabled, and I think you said you're digging deeper into the portfolios of your advisors and having more touches with clients. So that definitely is going to bring more success and bring more volume to the organization. No, I yeah, I agree. Look, again, I think it was such a shock for all of us, still is in a lot of ways, but our clients have interacted with us differently and accepted some of those new technology approaches, whether it's DocuSign, but it also forced the industry. The industry required a lot of wet signatures on a lot of different things. So it's accelerated and created velocity for us to interact, get things done with our clients in ways, again, behaviorally, hopefully we take a lot of that forward with us. Yeah. And I think, well, we will. I think hybrid is here to stay. Josh, you had something you wanted to add? Yeah, I mean, when we were talking about just the fast forwarding of technology and what that done, I think that's been huge within Ameriprise as well. And specifically, I know two years ago, majority of my calls were all over the phone. And a lot of times advisors would be on the go between branches in the car. I mean, it's not really uncommon in the institutional side. And because of the pandemic and being home and remote, they had to be in their front of the computer. We start having video meetings all the time, and lo and behold, they start doing that with their clients, so they can actually meet with more clients, not be behind the wheel as much. So I know that's been a big driver of production as well, as they don't have that two-hour drive to get to another branch. They can just do those meetings virtually, and they find out they get the same results. Who to thunk? <laughs> yeah. It's interesting that through all these discussions we have on the podcast and then discussions outside the podcast, just with programs we work with on a consulting basis, there were one of two reactions to the pandemic. Most organizations reacted very well by embracing remote technology and as you guys both referred to, doing more outreach to clients to make sure they were okay, they were comfortable, and that they were being serviced. And just that by nature of that outreach, the ability came to gather more assets. It's magic how that happens, right? You get in contact with your clients. The more contact you have with your clients, and ideally the right clients in your books, the more assets you're going to gather. That's why you cannot have 700 clients in your book because it's just, you cannot service them at that level. But anyway, the two types of reactions that we see are embracing remote work and leveraging the efficiencies that are inherent to remote work, right? And the other type of reaction we see, unfortunately, this was in the minority of programs, but we definitely saw it was deer in the headlights, like the oh crap moment. And how do we even do this? I'm not used to it. And we saw programs productivity tank among those programs that didn't embrace the new environment that was forced on them. So it was an inflection point that created, you know, what I'll call the haves and the have nots for quite a period of time. And there's recovery now, but not everybody embraced it. 
And it was a stark contrast among those who did and those who didn't. So that's interesting. So David, I want to follow up with you on two things. The first is during your introduction, and this may or may not have something to do with your success, but I have a feeling that it does. During your introduction, you mentioned, I think you said that you have three RIA businesses. Did I get that right? That's correct. And so those RIAs are owned by Atlantic Union? They are. That's correct. So that's unique, right? That You don't see that too often out there. Most of the time, the third-party broker-dealer RIA is leveraged and you don't have your own. All right. So my point is just having your own RIAs. And so my question, I'd, I'd like you to extrapolate on that a little bit, but just having your own RIA sends a very important message. And it's the right message because if you think of where the puck is going in the industry, right, it's going in that direction. And so by having your own RIAs, you're setting natural expectations that that's the way you want your advisors to act like RIAs, which is very different from the way most advisors in our channel have acted historically, right? So if you will, because I think our listeners would be very interested in that, give us an overview of how that happens, three RIAs, and what the interface is like between your advisors and the RIAs and how that may be one of the factors setting you guys apart. It is unusual to your point, and it's actually part of the story why I wound up there. The bank had gone through some mergers and acquisitions with different institutions. And when I showed up, they had two trust companies and three RIAs, and they had all these pieces from all these acquisitions. So my path over the last two years, and I started in November of 19. So I was there only four or five months before we went completely remote. I've been remote this whole time following up trying to follow through on the merger activities and getting all the businesses the way we wanted them to look like in wealth, if you will. But I think where you're going and what I believe is it creates a a broad platform for the FAs and the example there too with the trust companies, which can be overlooked. Our FAs refer business inside our trust company for asset management. They don't just work with the broker-dealer piece. They will once we finish bringing the RIAs together, and we are working to consolidate them for scale. We may keep all of the unique individual money management choices that they arrived with because that's where some of the personality and and the opportunity certainly can remain, but it's creating a complete platform to broaden out what FAs can do for their clients when they engage. And that, quite frankly, should go even broader because we should use the institution, whether it's mortgages or lending or all of those things. So Yes, there's a platform being pieced together in wealth that needs to be accessed. And then that needs to continue to follow through with the institution. Because look, clients want one doorway to walk through when they deal with an institute. They want one. I don't want to go through four or five doorways. So if we can stitch these things together in a way that makes that access easy, the solutions easy to get to, and it's easy for the FAs to partner as they work with the broader institution, that's the right direction to go. So we have a little bit of work to continue to piece some of those things together. We've done and completed the trust companies. And as you can imagine, it's technology and it's there's a lot that goes on with reorganizations and process and compliance. You know, there's, just, there's quite a bit. It's just like a merger. And at the same time, we've been dealing with the pandemic, new leadership. So we, we've had a lot of change into the FA's credits. They've been adaptable through a lot of this. But I think to your point, Scott, it will be another opportunity for them to use a different way of managing the money for their clients. So they'll be able to use broker-dealer solutions, bank trust solutions, asset management there, and or the RIA businesses. Yeah, that's so critical from the standpoint of differentiation, especially if you consider 
our primary competition, which I think is the IBD space and the RIA space, right? And if you consider the resources you have and the platform you have at your disposal at Atlantic Union now, so you mentioned trust and private banking and RIA services and brokerage, and then you look on the retail side, right? You have lending, you have business banking, et cetera. If you can get all of those working seamlessly together, you can offer so much more than any RIA or IBD firm out there, right? And the key, and David, you and I have talked about this in the past, but you know, they're the six core needs that people have relative mm-hmm. to their finances, savings and liquidity, credit, income now, income later, protection, and legacy. And if you can wrap all that stuff you have together so your clients' needs are understood because of a good discovery process, and then your advisors bring in the appropriate partners from different elements, different parts of the institution when appropriate and service those that have sophisticated asset situations with a team, because that makes a client feel really good that they have a team working with them, that's golden, right? You can't get much better than that. So I think that's an impressive direction that you're going in. So that leads into my primary question, because that was just a question that popped into my head based on your introduction. And the primary question is, you have an impressive background, David, with some firms on the wirehouse side and on the bank side. So you were with Wells, Dane Rauscher, Payne Weber, Shearson. You have a successful record building top performing programs in, in our channel. We know that based on the benchmarking data that we collect and Janet reports on. So give us your high-level thoughts on where the puck is going. So from an industry standpoint, and more specifically from the standpoint of our channel, if you think of where the puck is going industry-wide and how our channel has to react, what do we have to do? So where's that puck going and what do we have to do as a channel that tends to be a follower more than a leader? What do we have to do to not only keep up, but stay relevant if you fast forward five, 10 years from now? Well, I may take the answer a different direction. So it may sound like a non-answer as we go along. Are you, but, are you being you know. a politician now, David? <laughs> <laughs> but first, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of laughing. I think that's a nice way of telling me I'm an old guy when you refer to all the firms I've been at. And it's actually true. You know, I started in 1981. So I have seen a lot of change in the industry. Well, you were but, only 11 when you started, though. So, uh, yeah, 10, but, you know, absolutely. But yeah, I have seen a lot of changes, whether it's, you know, the mergers of first the brokerage firms and then brokerage and banking. And now, to, you know, all the things we've gone through. And actually, I think that's part of the answer, you know, that I'd like to give. But, you know, I think I'm going to focus on one area of the business that I think makes us relevant and creates the difference. It's always going to be the thing that makes us relevant. And it may or may not surprise you, but I think it's also one of the areas that we've probably done the poorest job of shaping and adapting as all these things have gone through. And I'll give you some examples of why I think that is true. The financial advisor is really the only thing that makes our industry relevant. It's not technology, it's not products, it's not process. They're the interface with the client. Their ability to adapt you know, in any environment, whether it's mergers and acquisitions or market change or tax law, I mean, you think about it, that's our product. I mean, that's where everything makes a difference. And I'm not sure we've done what we need to do to help them be ready for all these things. And there's a couple of reference points. So let me, let me get there because this is, might be a little bit of a long-winded answer. So I'm going to ask for forgiveness up front um, and certainly interrupt along the way. But if you look at the continuum of back when, I'm going to reference myself, uh, started the business, everything was manual. I mean, we did financial plans by hand. We didn't have spreadsheets. 
some people listening to this going, that guy is old, right? <laughs> He's like, there were no spreadsheets. There were no money guide pros. There were no ETFs. There were no wrap fee money management programs. There were no, you know, like you can go on and on and on and on. So the products didn't manage themselves. You had to take the time to do the work, to put the pieces together for the client solutions. And certainly that's moved forward through time, obviously so. But people got into the business because they, you know, they either had a, an interest in being a little technical to find those things and look for the right stocks and bonds, or they were salespeople and we gave them a script and just said, go do a transaction and act like you know all that stuff, right? It's kind of both extremes. Then over time, I think those two things came together. Our salespeople got a little more technical. Our technical people got a little more sales oriented as the industry developed automated answers, if you will, when you look at those things. And one area I think to kind of focus in on that has continued to happen is because of that automation and let's say the ease of the solution. I don't have to do that work. I can just meet with the client and put the pieces together. It's a little more automated. Is wait, as we go forward, it's going to be robo-credit, robo-trust, robo-insurance. Everything is going to reach a level of automation that's going to make me irrelevant. And what does that mean for me in this environment that's changing while all of these things around me, whether it's tech firms trying to get into our business, some of the obvious things that we talk about, the need to introduce a lot more diversity into how we deliver because of the way our world is changing and whether it's the shift in assets that we've talked about for 20 or 30, 40. We've talked about all this money moving into these future generations in retirement for 40 years. Harry Dent talked about this 35 years ago. None of this stuff is new. So a lot of the things that we act like new aren't new. The College for Financial Planning started in the 1970s, and we're still trying to convince FAs to be financial planners. So, I mean, you can look at a lot of examples of, yes, the industry's changed, and we've reacted, oh, we upgraded technology, we upgraded products, we upgraded all these things, and we drug the FAs along as best we could. And a lot of it they should own. I mean, they really should own it. It's their careers. But we have done, I think, a poor job of really getting our best asset to the point that they're prepared for the future, for all of these changes. And we can argue about what they're going to be. You know, We're not going to get them right. We might get half right, half wrong. The FA is still going to be there and they're going to have to execute. But where I think it's going, if you stay focused on the FA, is it's going to be a lot more about the people part of what we do. Now, we say that, but here I'll give you an example. Let's welcome robo. Let's say, don't fear it, embrace it, because you're going to have more time like you always have because everything automated. You don't write the plan by hand. You've got automation. So robo is just that next step in automation that we've been on for 45, 50 years. Honestly, it's just there. It's giving you more time to interact, interface with clients personally. But I think that makes them uncomfortable because they were built on technical knowledge or features and benefit knowledge or the things we've taught them. And so this transition that we're taking them through is going to be awkward for them. And you still have something going, no, you're going to get automated out. And I go, no, you're not. Let me tell you why. Let's say you have this conversation and it's all based on algorithms. I mean, if it's a transaction type event, you can write a program for it. So it can be a transaction, but you can't write a transaction on this. Client comes in and says, David, my wife just died. You can't write an algorithm for that. David, I have a special needs child. David, I just got laid off. David, my business just went broke. 
I mean, think of life. So we're really moving more and more into this area and it may make us feel uncomfortable because we relied our egos on, I'm the smart, I've got alpha, I've got beta. I can talk about all these fancy things in the industry to show my value, to show where, you know, I can distinguish myself. And I think some of that's still real, obviously don't want to discount that away. That wouldn't be true. But I also believe we haven't prepared them to be a lot more personal with our clients in very unique ways to hear our clients differently so that the value we add is not just in the solution. It's in how we continue to walk our clients through life and the stress and the strain of life. So I think a lot's gone on that we may not have paid attention to because for the most part, we're students of the market, students of our clients. We're not always students of the industry. And looking at what's going on in the industry is going to give you some foresight about where to go. You said a lot of very interesting things there. So I was scribbling and let me see if I can refer to my notes and respond to some of those because there's some fascinating insights. One is you can't write an algorithm for trust, right? And I think that's where you are going. And if trust is what will keep the advisor employed, if we want to put it that way, then advisors better be really good at developing trust. I would suggest that most of the advisors in our channel are not there yet. They're not really good at developing trust because they don't spend enough time in the discovery process to really understand their clients' needs and what those emotional factors are that influence their financial decisions, what it means for them to take care of their loved ones and all that kind of stuff, right? And, you know, I use the term trusted advisor, you know, when you're a trusted advisor, when you're managing the majority of your client's assets, not the minority, if it's the minority, you're an afterthought, right? So most of our advisors aren't there yet. The ones that are, are doing really well. So trust is a differentiator, get good at developing trust. The other thing about robo, I'm with you, embrace robo. Robo, as it evolves, will end up being your advisory platform. There's not going to be a difference between your advisory platform and robo. The only difference is going to be whether or not you're holding your client's hands as they use robo, right? So it comes back to you, the advisor. So the third, and I think the overriding point of all this is that I agree humans will always be in the equation. That's where the sweet spot will always be. It's where technology and the human factor blend in, in, at that perfect point, right? So there's, uh, I used this analogy the other day. You can buy a car for $20,000 that will get you from point A to point B. Or you can buy a car for, let's say, $75,000, $80,000 that get you from point A to point B, right? There are plenty of people out there, and typically they're the types of people that we would like to have as clients that say, yeah, I know I can buy a car for $20,000, but I'm going for the Audi for $75,000 or $80,000, right? Well, they both get you to where you want to be, but what's the difference between those two experiences? And if you can define that as an advisor and say, okay, I want to be that Audi, but what do I have to do? with what my clients experience, my process, so they're willing to pay that extra for that white glove type service. That's what you have to figure out, right? And, and that's what I think you're referring to, David, right? So yeah, advisors will always be around. Not the number of advisors that are out there today, because the ones that can't make that transition are going to be obsolete and they're going to be replaced by technology. But the good advisors, where that's not a bridge too far, will always be around. Right. Yeah. Well, and I would use the analogy, it's slightly different saying if the car is the technology that's helping me make a decision to buy insurance or buy investments, it's the vehicle. Right. Both vehicles have crashes and crashes are life. And that's where you need the help. Right. It's like, boom, spouse died, boom, you know, some life event happens and that's the crash. 
Yeah. And they're fine letting it be autopilot until the crash happens and then they need help. That's and right. so that to me, and some of those things are more emotional than others. And some people are more fearful than others. And, you know, that's where the human side of all this comes in. And I think why you see the trend in the industry, which is, again, things we don't talk about a lot. You start, I'm a coach. Wait, I, I might as well be my client psychologist. I mean, we've heard all of this kind of funny language over the years of how I relate to my clients and then I'm part of their family. And But we haven't defined what that is and what that's becoming. So I think we're, we're certainly more life coach sounds a little funny because of how people think about some of those things. But you're in there with your life, working with them. We live our lives with our clients and you build trust through that you know, and helping them and sometimes helping them when there's not a transaction to be had. And I think a lot of financial advisors do have those conversations. I talk to my clients about things that don't have anything to do with what I do. So yeah, I I love the analogy, but I think there's crashes in there and, and that's when our clients need us. Yeah. Yeah. And what's interesting is if you look at the very best advisors out there, I'm not talking about in our channel, I'm talking about overall, the very best advisors out there are working with their clients on more than just their investable assets, a lot more. They're helping them with other life stuff. They're helping them with illiquid assets. They're helping them with real estate. They're helping them with figuring out where their kids are going to go to college and all that. And they're, they're actually getting paid for it. It's on a different basis. They're getting fee-for-service type stuff, right? But the best advisors are so close to their clients that when their clients need a babysitter, they call their advisor and they say, hey, is your daughter available to babysit or your son available to babysit, right? I mean, that's so take it to the extreme and that's where you are, but that's where it should be. All right, Bob, I think you have a question for Josh. Absolutely. And kind of along the same wavelength, uh, you know, David, we asked you for some historical stuff. Josh, you've been at Ameriprise for more than a dozen years, and I'm sure you've seen a lot of change. And to use David's term before, probably a lot of crashes as well, especially lately. But from that perspective, what can you share with our listeners about some of the financial institution programs progress over the last 12 years or so? Yeah, I mean, what David just said really, really uh, resonates with our really successful programs and the ones that have grown and the programs that maybe have not grown. And what I mean by that is when you look at the programs that we've been working with, I mean, just this year alone, we have, you know, our top 10 programs are all 150% or higher above their goal. Our top program has doubled their revenue this year. And a lot of those things can be attributed to just the client experience they're giving their clients. So they're proactively reaching out to to your point. They're calling about other things in their situation. They're referring to their bank and loan officers opportunities. And when you do those things, you get good things back in return. Your clients love you. They refer more people to you. So the top programs are really telling their advisors, you need to be an all-encompassing advisor. You're not going to be a person that sits there and waits for foot traffic to come in and put them in a product. So how can we grow that? And then the second piece outside of the the experience that your clients get is what is the size of your institution? And do you have the right number of advisors and the right type of advisor? So I can share with you our best programs right now. If you looked at them two, three, four years ago, they have twice as many advisors, three times as many advisors in some cases, because they just weren't properly running their branches at the time. And a lot of that, how you get there is working with our group, working with the leaders of Ameriprise and identifying which branches need advisors, how many do they need, what demographic do we need to look after? So all those things kind of playing a part in the advisors and the institutions that have taken that next step. The other piece, I didn't talk about that yet, was 
like a program manager or just a key executive or a key member of that institution, you really need to have that top-down approach. We can work with the advisors and beat our heads against the wall with the advisors on what they need to do and all these things that David mentioned, which are super important. The advisors need to have that experience that the clients are asking for. But if you're not getting the support from the top down, it's really not going to go anywhere. So we've kind of taken all those things. And I feel like in the last three, four years, we've really kind of figured out a really good process. And we got some bigger institutions that are continuing to add a few folks. And it's uh, really all those common themes that I've laid out for you there. Are you you using any tiered approach to advisors, junior advisors, senior advisors, second story or anything like that? Yeah, all the above. So I'd say the most common one is that you'll call it that junior advisor. You know, you have that, you know, we talked about what's that key number of clients you should have. Is it 200, 300, 250? That's probably the most common one. You have that advisor that's been doing it for 20 plus years. They got their really good clients, but they've accumulated four or 500 clients because this is the problem they have. They're so good at their job. They've built great relationships in the bank, in the credit union that everybody refers everybody to them. So it's a good problem to have, but they went from having 200 clients to 10, 15 years later, they have 500 clients and they're still trying to service all of them. So that's our most common thing is let's segment your book. Let's find your platinum, gold, silver, figure out who those clients you absolutely are going to work with. Less is more, as David said at the beginning. And then Let's find a junior advisor that you can bring into the fold. And we don't just bring them in and say, here's 200 clients. Good luck. Not a great experience for the client. It's a couple year process. Bring them in, get them under your wings, introduce them to your clients and transition them out. So that's a big one. And then I I love the second floor advisor. That's kind of the dream, right? If you're in the institution, you can have all your clients and those really high net worth referrals come in and then those foot traffic, which we know that is almost non-existent in a lot of branches right now, but starting to pick up again, the folks that come in and say, I need to meet with an advisor. Do you got somebody for us? That five to 10 year advisor, or even a first or second year advisor, that's a great person to put them in front of versus that 25 year vet that's got a really big book they're working on. So all those things are happening and our biggest programs probably have all of those income in place right now. That one top program you said where production doubled, is there anything that stands out and and is unique about how that program got to that level? Two big things. So recruiting is always good. They identified we have a huge geographic footprint. We have hundreds of branches. We don't have enough advisors. So let's recruit advisors that do things the way we want to run things. They do goal-based advice to look at the whole situation. They like to use managed money and some of those things. We find those advisors. We've brought those into the institutions in the last couple of years. That's helped grow it a lot. That's the quick lift. But the second thing is the relationship we have with the program manager, and they have people at their side that kind of help with the business side. That's huge. We meet every couple of weeks to just make sure we're on the same page and that we're doing the things that they're looking for and we're helping them support their programs. Those two things together has been a home run for probably our top three biggest programs. But that one specifically, I know really stands out. Dave, did you have something? I was thinking in general, you know, we've talked about change and the change is coming. I think it's a unique time in our business as we move forward, thinking about the bank programs 
because banks are going to be challenged with interest rates being lower longer, which means they're looking more for non-interest income. They really want those businesses to grow. I mean, they're getting a lot of pressure from Wall Street for those businesses to grow. So when you think about teaming internally, partnering internally, maybe there was resistance before, not necessarily at the consumer bank level in the branches, but there's all kinds of opportunities, whether it's commercial or mortgage or all the other groups inside of the institution. We're really trying to hit those dials like we never have before because there's constant talk about the strategy going forward needs to be raise that income over there. We don't need any more over here. We have too many deposits. We don't have enough loans. It's costing us money, you know, and the future of banking. So as you think about the future of banking five, 10 years out, the trajectory for the consumer bank is not up, it's down. What's left? Commercial, business, wealth, and wealth being our programs. So it's a very unique time. Don't give up. You know, I would say double down and press harder. Make the story known more inside of your institution. I think you'll find that you're going to be able to gain a lot more support if you can show how you're going to execute, how you're going to make it work. So again, I think the crossroads are here. Change is here. The future is definitely different, but adapt to it. The opportunities are as big, if not bigger, I think, than they've been. So I think it's positive. I think we're in a great spot. You bring up the internal partnerships, and that is another thing that we've been hearing a lot about in the industry on how organizations are really crossing those silos and really trying to generate interest throughout the organization and have stakeholders, regardless of where they sit, whether it's commercial lending or consumer lending or mortgage, and really wrapping ourselves around financial planning well more globally in the organization. So good stuff. Josh, you had a thought? Yeah, I was just going to add on what David said. He's right on, and that's probably the third thing I didn't even mention, the differentiator between our successful programs and the ones that aren't. Years and years ago, when deposits were what they were and you weren't worried about the revenue from the wealth business, you just had an advisor in the branch as an evaluate. You really didn't depend on them for revenue. It was just, they're there, we're going to pay them a salary, and It's just a great value add, but the uh, institutions, especially the ones I've been working with here at Ameriprise and our group, they identified years ago, we can make money here and we're going to grow this. And it's not just going to be somebody that's in an office, a butt in a seat that we know they're there if we need them. We're going to see how we can grow this because we need to find every area of revenue we can have. So yeah, David hit it right on the head there. That's 100% true in our firm. Well, so it reminds me of a number of things that maybe our listeners are going to get tired of hearing me saying, but one is that our channel is guilty of letting assets leave our institutions as our clients get wealthier, right? It's just statistically provable that the wealthier our clients get, the less likely it is they're going to keep their assets in our institutions. They go elsewhere. They go to other brokerage organizations. They go to the Schwab's and the Fidelities, et cetera, right? And we're letting that happen. So there's a huge opportunity, if we can get better with wealth management, a huge opportunity to retain assets that would otherwise leave the organization one, and two, gather assets that we don't have in the organization because, as David said, they're looking for one door to walk through. We can be that one door if we are doing our job right because we can cover every one of those needs. We haven't been doing a good job on the wealth side, and that's why assets leave the institution as clients get wealthier. But you know, it, it begs the question, what are the right number of advisors for an institution? Well, Depends how you look at it, right? So look at our penetration rates. The average penetration rate is 4% of our clients have an investment account. 
Well, you need a lot more advisors if you want to start increasing that because 4% sucks, right? It gets worse than that, though, because if you look at what's going on out there from an average wallet share standpoint, the average advisor has 35, 40% wallet share. So not only do penetration rates suck with investment accounts as a ratio of our members, but even those with investment accounts are not giving us all their investable assets. It's the minority of their investable assets. So there's a ton of room for growth. And this is a situation where more isn't less, right? More is more. <laughs> but the key, the key to this is having a strong leader that can paint a vision and carry a flag and have all of the people behind him or her march in the same direction. If you don't have a leader that can create that vision of where we have to go to be successful and to create that trust and to get majority wallet share and march in a direction that is the right direction and have everybody follow, you're never going to get there. And one of the things I think we've been suffering from, and it's getting better, but we've been suffering from in our channel is a lack of that very strong leadership that can align themselves with the rest of the executives running the organization and saying, we're part of the same team. Let's march in this direction, right? I mean, I'm getting philosophical, but I think you guys know where I'm going. That's important. That's critically important. Yeah, I would add to that to maybe emphasize it. Wealth typically has not been at the table to run the bank. So when you think about ELT and the need to be there to tell the story constantly with your partners, whether it's commercial or home mortgage or whoever those partners are that are at that table, the unique thing about Atlantic Union Bank and credit to the CEO, I'm at the table. So I'm there with that team that's talking about bank strategy, what we're going to do going forward, why these things are important. I can tell the story versus sitting outside having someone tell my story. And so that's the next step from what you just said, I think, Scott, is maybe not easy to do, but if that's the shift where banks programs realize that they need these programs to grow, you got to bring the executives together and that makes things move forward better, more connected with what needs to happen. So that's how we're set up at Atlantic Union Bank. Yeah, I, I think that's critically, critically important. It provides an, an amazing amount of leverage and it better serves the client, frankly, right? In the end analysis, it better serves the client if that's the case. All right. So let's go for one last question here that you both can answer. And that is key initiatives. Do either of you, and maybe David, you can kick us off. Do either of you see some key strategic initiatives that either you've implemented, and in your case, Josh, this is the, the firms that you work with, right? So you've implemented, seen implemented that are really moving the needle or that you are planning on implementing and have a lot of high expectations for very specific reasons. So let's talk specifically. Are there specific initiatives that you guys are getting excited about? And David, maybe you can kick us off. I'll give an example and give credit to the head of our consumer bank again. And maybe it's because of the current environment we're in where you're flush with deposits. So you're not as worried about working and asking clients to consider being introduced to someone in the program or in wealth. But they've segmented their deposit books of 250,000, 500, 750 million. They've got different segments. And those clients are actively being called not by bankers, but by leaders in the consumer bank. And in the case of over a million, the head of the consumer bank and me call those clients. And so a whole different approach to approaching clients that have money to consider other services inside the bank, rather than just relying on traffic going in and out the door 
very proactive. Number one, just added service. Like we know you have a lot of deposits with us. It's an outreach, blah, 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 right? Anything you can do. But it also shows them that they're important. And it gives us, I think, that much greater a chance of moving them to another area. Look, some of them say, yeah, I need a mortgage. And so, you know, it can be anything, but it's working very well. I mean, we just started it in the last six months. In fact, we just had a debrief call on it today and have been pleased with where that's going. And I think going forward into the new year, we're going to see, again, not kind of the typical introductions with traffic, but a whole different level of introductions move throughout the organization. Yeah, that's cool. I love that. Yeah, good work. Josh, how about you? Yeah, so our best advisors, it seems too simple, but they literally just meet with their clients on a regular basis and they have a service model and a process every quarter, every year. And you look at the best advisors in our institution group, they're all just meeting with their clients on a regular basis. So what we're really focused on and what I'm excited about right now is we have some tools now that can let the rest of the advisors really more easily implement that. So the segmentation of their practice, it's very simple. You can customize it to what you're doing. You can build your service model, and then you can implement that into your CRM system to start utilizing it with it. And it's just a few clicks of a button. They can actually use it on an ongoing basis. And we've actually seen our numbers this year with just the amount of contacts that our clients are having with their best clients almost double. And the amount of people that are getting segmented into a service model is almost tripled. So it doesn't seem like a lot, but the products are always going to be the products. We got the technology and all that stuff that we've worked on, but it really comes back to just being able to implement a great experience and a system for your clients on a consistent basis. You know, they always say under promise over deliver. Our advisors can now do that better than being swamped with those 400 clients they realize that they haven't spoke to 200 of them in three, four years because that's the last time they needed something, right? So that's something that we've really been able to get in front of them. And we're excited about what we can do uh, in the next couple of years there. Yeah. You know, Josh, it's a, Bob knows exactly where I'm going to go with this, right? He's probably smiling because he heard you say process a couple of times. And that's like a trigger that flips when I hear that. Because here's the bottom line. If you're an advisor, the only product that you have the only product that you have is your process. That's it. You do not have any other product. So your process is your product. So you better obsess over that and get it right. And so Josh, those advisors you're talking about that are standing above the rest, when you said it's because they're meeting their clients regularly, well, it's more than that. They have a process that they execute and they execute it consistently and flawlessly. And my guess is that there are aspects of their process that are a little bit better than their competition. It doesn't have to be that much better. It has to be five to 10% better for you to differentiate yourself, right? So if you obsess over every single part of your process and look at it and say, how can this part of my process be better? And how can the next part of my process be better? And then the next part of my process, you're going to differentiate yourself and you're going to win. I heard, I heard a thing, it was on LinkedIn this morning. This girl that I know that's in marketing and she's phenomenal. And she said, part of your process is even the way your office smells when your client walks in. I mean, that's how obsessive you have to get. That makes a difference. I mean, Ron Carson used to have his office smell like chocolate chip cookies because his clients reacted positively to that, right? So obsess over your process. It's the only product that you have because those advisory accounts, those annuities, everything else, that's not your product. That's somebody else's product. You only have your process. You're smiling and you're shaking your head. I assume you agree. I could, I could spend another hour on that, but I agree. You know, that's kind of wrapped in with practice management, right? But I 100% agree. 
All right. Well, I think this has been a good discussion. I'm, I'm sure our listeners have gotten some good nuggets out of the discussion. And thank you both for that. That's what we do this for, just sharing best practices. Our objective is to raise the competitiveness of our whole channel so we can compete more readily with some of the other channels that we're up against. And I think you've contributed to that. So thank you. We appreciate you being a part of it. Bob, any last words? Just thanks again to our participants today, David and Joss. Thanks to the BISA as well for their partnership with this podcast series. Jeff Hartney, thank you as well from BISA. Janet Capaletti, thanks for all your work on the research. Ameriprise, thank you for your sponsorship. And to all of our listeners, don't forget to subscribe to this series and our others, Industry Leadership and Success and Untangling FinTech. You can get all of our podcasts wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again and have a great day. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you, guys. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of BISA Industry Trend Watch. And thanks to Ameriprise for their much appreciated support. Be sure to subscribe to our two other podcast series, Industry Leadership and Success, focused on industry-leading performance and success stories, and Untangling FinTech, aimed at helping you keep up with the evolution of technology offerings in our industry. Goodbye until next month.